when I started doing episodes of this show on parenting, which are actually archived interviews from a few years ago when I did a YouTube channel called The Progressive Parent, it was part of my own personal development, I guess, trying to understand my own childhood and what I might have got if I'd had the world's greatest parents. I was a bit concerned that these wouldn't get as many hits because obviously not everyone's a parent, not everyone's interested in parenting, but I have to say, all of these episodes on parenting seem to do very well, so that's very encouraging for me. There's only a few left in the can, but they will be put out here and there. This is one with my friend Morgana McCabe-Allen. She has, since this interview was recorded, completed her PhD in topics relating to investment in early childcare, and as you'll discover, she's extremely knowledgeable on early childhood development. Let, let's rock it. Okay. Hi Morgana, thanks for joining us. Hi, thank you for having me. <laughs> I'm very pleased to have you here. So one aspect of your professional research has been on agency and parenthood and considering children really as individuals, which I feel that our society has quite a long way to go on. I mean, it was a long struggle just getting women the vote. But today, the only people that you're allowed to hit legally is children. And that seems to suggest to me that there's still quite a ways to go in the way that we view children as people. Would you like to tell us a bit about what you've learned and your views on those kinds of things? Um, certainly. And I, I definitely would start with agreeing with you that children are, are in many ways in our society, the last people to become people. Um, and when I, I'll explain what I mean by that by first clarifying that my research spans a great time scale. I'm looking at investment in childhood as an archaeologist. So I look way back in the past at different cultures all the way through to modern society. And what you see is that infant life begins at different times in different cultures. So say, for example, for Romans, a child wasn't fully part of the world until they had teeth. Um, and there, there are other ways, like being walking or first words could be the marker point for when a child's life begins. And in our society, we now have a very strange divide because childhood begins at the point where you can no longer legally have an abortion. That's when a child becomes an entity recognised by law. Or for some people would even argue that a, child, a child's life begins at 12 weeks or even at conception. However, bring that child into the world and they're still not actually afforded any personhood. They don't have any recognised ability to act. They're sort of seen as an extension of their parent, almost like a possession. And that also, as you say, with things like children being the only people that you're legally allowed to hit, um, they're recognised in that way in law, rather than having the same type of personhood as an adult, they've got a different um, a sort of lower level of existence. And that's something that I think doesn't do well in our society. It's not something that we benefit from. Um, I'm very keen to see a greater level of personhood attributed to children and to see both parents and society recognising them as people 
from a much earlier stage. Can you tell me a little bit about what you think are some of the ways that our societies do not do well as a consequence of that? I certainly have my own views, but I'd love to hear from from you and maybe add some perspectives to anything you have to say. Well, I think that when we we hold children back, we keep them in a sort of liminal stage where they are a, a, a sub-person, where they're only allowed to do what their parents let them do, they're under constant supervision, they don't have a similar set, not just of rights, but of respect. You know, p parents, for example, often don't give their ch children simple choices, like what foods do they want to have or what clothes do they want to wear, easy things that children could choose. Um, they grow up coming through this handheld uh, environment, which is, is very limited and is presented to them only in certain ways, suddenly in their late teens or early 20s, they're expected to just make a huge jump and become complete, responsible, reasoning adults. And I think that there are a lot of ways that that is detrimental to our society because children are often, for example, uh, not told the, the truth about things. They're not presented with the hard facts like life and death. They're sheltered from things. And I'm not suggesting that, you know, we should be intentionally exposing our children to these things, but rather that children should be respected as part of the, the overall world and as interactive agents within that world and given the opportunity to engage with what is out there and help through it so that when it comes time to be independent adults, they're fully equipped. Yeah, I think that often when you see parents out with children, there is like a terror there with the parents that the child is going to do something that is going to show them up. and. Sometimes you go out and you see parents with children that are just like, don't touch that, no, don't do that, don't do, and they're constantly regulating the child. Now that can't be any fun at all for the parent, but for the child, it must be like you're constantly walking on eggshells. And for a, ch a young child of three, four, five, six to process, not being able to know what is the correct move without putting a foot out of line. I mean, if we imagined that as an adult person being in a relationship where that was the standard of treatment we were receiving, people around would say, oh, that's that's a toxic relationship. You know, that is constantly undermining your self-esteem. That is constantly undermining your ability to act without yeah. Yeah, fearing a consequence. Yeah, I definitely would agree with that. And I see that toxicity all the time. I've spent a lot of time on uh, these sort of support pages in inverted commas for new parents. I've finally got to the point where I just stopped participating in them because I think actually they foster very unhealthy relationships between parents and children. And an awful lot of that does come down to the level of control that parents exert over their children. And I understand that it is out of there is out of concern for the child's safety or concern for other people, for example, other people's possessions. They don't want their child to damage them. But at the end of the day, if you continually exert your will onto a child, 
you're not giving them the full space to develop and you're also creating problems for later when they have a million things to rebel against. Um, and I, a good example of this is reins, you know, the little harnesses. Right, right you, on. Yeah. You put on kids and you see kids wearing them. And I get it for a very small early toddler. We use them briefly when my child was making the transition from walking holding hands to walking uh, in fully independently purely because it allowed us to have that kind of safety if he was going to trip up or something but we never used them in a restrictive way we let him determine the course and it really was just for a week or two while we were making that transition until he was steady enough on his feet to walk in public without tripping down and even at that not in the park or not walking along you know in a safe area I'm talking about along the side of the road or in a busy place where people might step on him if he fell down but I see kids who are easily four still out in rains and the same goes with buggies you see kids much older than they have to be I mean my child's not even two and we we rarely ever take a buggy or any kind of harness or anything like that with us anywhere at all um but you see kids in buggies nearly four or even already four years old and that is a form of restriction that's a parent's way of saying i can't really be bothered chasing you about and I'm not prepared to deal with your behaviour when you're exploring the world so I'm just going to strap you into this capsule and control you. For sure. I wanted to quote something that you had said previously because I think it really fantastically encapsulates your philosophy. Morgana wrote, my real drive in terms of investment in infant life lies in helping parents see that their child is not a mere extension of themselves or a powerless entity that cannot act, but rather an infant as a person with particularly challenging needs in order to understand their communication and their desire to act and to assist them in developing both. Can you talk about some practical approaches for parents who might want to extend more autonomy to their children to help and assist them in developing both their communication and desire to act? Certainly, the children want to communicate and children want to act. All you have to do is listen actively and watch actively. Be attentive to your child. If they're trying to draw your attention to something, don't be too busy on your iPhone. Don't be watching television. Don't be just quickly popping something on the microwave. Give them your full attention. See what they're trying to direct you to and give them a word for it. Help them, help them to understand what is around them and let them explore things. And yes, some things will be messy. And yes, some things will be dangerous. But within reason, let them explore things um, and you'll find out what they're interested in and who they are. Um, and you could, by allowing them to do that and letting them have the space to do it, so you watch and you listen, but don't do it for them. Don't force them to do it a certain way. Like, yeah, okay, so maybe you'd like the paint to go on the paper, but the paint goes on their body. That's okay. Just watch, listen, and be guided by them. And when it comes to developing, on a day-to-day -day basis because children's needs change very quickly day by day their, their needs are changing you have to be attentive to those changes watch for them 
and move with them, even if you're not ready. So I was not ready for my child to give up a high chair before his first birthday, but he absolutely was. He did not want to sit in a high chair. He felt like a big boy. He was used to having uh, as much freedom as an, an autonomy as he asked for. And so he decided to stop going in the high chair and he wanted to sit on the big chair and he has ever since. And it meant that I had to watch him more carefully in the beginning in case he fell off. And it meant that we had to do a workaround so that he could reach food on the table. But ultimately, it means that now we go out and he can sit in a chair at a restaurant and eat his dinner with a knife and fork and he's not two. And I see bigger kids still in a high chair eating with their fingers. And it's not that we forced him to learn to do that. It's that we were attentive and we moved with him when he was ready. Right, right. So you take your cues from the child because there's this kind of philosophy that pervades society that we have to somehow train children into adulthood because, you know, we know best. But a lot of that is really just about meeting parents' needs, their needs to see themselves as good parents or to see their children as advanced or being readers or whatever they want to coerce their children into doing before their developmental stage. Actually, your children have are really very much like the seed of an oak tree. If you give that acorn fertile ground to grow, it is going to grow. And if you want to plant a garden, you need to look at the, the needs of your plants. Maybe they need a cane to stand up and when they're ready, they don't need it anymore. You need to know when, see when the plant needs water, see when the plant needs protected from the water so that it won't drown, see when it needs fertilizer. You take your cues from the organism and the organism gives you useful information on how you are going to tend to its needs. Yeah, that, that's exactly true. And people are actually really good at doing that with things like plants and really bad at doing it with things like children. And part of that's to do with how much information there is out there about how your child should reach this stage now and that stage then. And maybe it's time for a big bed or, you know, whatever. But every child is different and you have to allow them to be a person. They're not a formula. They're not made to a specification. Exactly. And how part, uh, patronising would we find that if our, our partner said, well, you know, I think you're at the stage in your life where you should be doing this, that or the other. Oh, you know, I think I think you're old enough not not to need me to come to the dinner table at the time that you you want to eat. Uh, you know, you can eat you can eat on your own or whatever our personal needs in the in the in our relationship where these are things that are to be negotiated and discussed and for agreement to come together. And on that point, um, you know, imagine you were extremely distressed and your partner was to say something like, oh, eh, Morgana's just being dramatic. We should allow, eh, just, just let her cry it out. Uh, I certainly know that if my girlfriend did that to me, there would be a big conversation coming up because I'd be like, look, I'm upset here and you're in my environment and you're a close person to me and I expect your support. But that is often what we hear adults saying about children. And one thing that we discussed discussing in this conversation is the concept of allowing children to cry it out. 
I know you know a lot about that. Would you tell us some of your perspectives and what you've learned? Uh, certainly. Let me start with a little uh, a story. Imagine that you, as an adult, have decided that you're going to learn to drive. In fact, you've not even decided. Your parents have turned up and said, it's your 17th birthday. You're going to learn to drive today. So what we're going to do is we're going to drive 100 miles. Then we'll just drop you off in the car and you can drive yourself home. And you get home whenever you get home. Have fun. Bye-bye. And your parents left you with a car that you hadn't driven before and you didn't know how to work and you had to figure it out and get home. No, no parents would do that. And yet they expect their child to be suddenly work out that they can lie down in the bed and go to sleep. They don't appreciate that sleeping all through the night is not a behaviour that comes naturally to a tiny infant. It's something that you have to learn how to do. The world's a complicated place, particularly now that we've got TV and electric lights and all the rest of it. There are a million things stimulating children, keeping those little brains busy and active, trying to get in the way of them falling asleep and sleeping through the night. And yet, instead of holding their hands and helping them relax and unwind and, 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 and figure out how to go to sleep safely and to feel secure and good in their bed, we think it's a good idea to just put them in their bed and let them cry. And somehow that's expected to teach them good sleep habits for life. That just doesn't make any sense to me. It doesn't show any respect for your child and you're not equipping them with the lifelong skill, which is actually going to sleep is. And I know that because I've taken part in dozens and dozens of sleep studies. I was a total insomniac for most of uh, my life. And my parents didn't have any bedtime for, for us. When I was a toddler, I could stay up till 11 o'clock if I wanted. Um, I could do, and even when I went to school, there really weren't rules about that as long as I could get up and go to school in the morning. Um, and I didn't learn good sleep habits until I was an adult. So it's not something that we can just presume that you put your child in their bed and let them cry. They, they'll learn how to go to sleep and, and that's it. They'll, they'll sleep happily for the rest of their life. Why not take the time to give them a proper course of instruction, if you like? So, you know, teach them that they have supper and then maybe a baby massage and then uh, have a favourite teddy that they take to bed with them and give them a bedtime story and, and make it a very slow and gentle process. Don't expect them to master it in one or two nights. Take the time to teach them how to fall asleep peacefully, how to quiet their mind, and they'll have that as a lifelong skill. It is a, a point of curiosity because, you know, someone who's crying, whether it's a baby, an infant, a child or an adult, is in distress. How easy is it to fall asleep when you're distressed? No one. I mean, what, what, what comes up in our minds when we hear the term, I cried myself to sleep? That sounds like an adult is having a really horrible time. And yet, some, so many parents uh, expect their, their baby to cry themselves to sleep. I know that um, a generation set back, there was a lot in the media in favour of the cry it out approach. And it just goes to show how callous we were to the, the feelings of young ones. 
Luckily, more information has been coming out saying this is a really bad idea. But I think the important thing to keep in mind that is that when children cry in any circumstance, that is an expression of their needs. That is an expression of their feelings. A baby can't say to you, I'm scared, I'm lonely. It, it has no words to express its needs, so it cries because it's trying to help you. It's trying to help you parent it. Yeah, that's, that's exactly true. And that's, a, that's where this thing about respect comes in. If you attribute your child's full personhood and consider them a complete person and you acknowledge that they're crying as a form of communication, that obliges you to respond with caring the same way that you would if it was your partner that was crying themselves to sleep. But as long as you think of human uh, of babies as sort of subhuman, undeveloped, with without personhood, something onto which you are going to stamp your pattern and your agenda, then you don't have to afford them that respect. And that's how people justify it in their minds. Yes, uh, uh, one of the guests I had on my show was called Rosalind Ross, and she uh, shared with me a concept that blows my mind which is called job parenting. When you see parenting as your job and you have a task and that task is to be a good parent, then whatever your criteria for being a good parent is your goal and you're going to act on those criteria. So uh, your, your job's now to get, get, get the homework done. So it doesn't matter how much forcing your children and arguing with them is going to deteriorate your bond it's your job to do that it's your job to make sure that child is in bed at 7 p.m so now your child's concern is no longer of any consequence to you because you have to do your job as a parent you are now acting on the child the child loses its parent personhood and we could do the same thing in a relationship if i think it is my job to get my girlfriend to marry me then even if she's not at the same stage as me, then I'm not seeing her as a person. I'm now trying to find ways to get her to comply with what, what I want. We stop being in dialogue together. You know, if I think my job as a husband is to bring home the cash, then I'm going to do that to the detriment of other aspects of a relationship. And so that is a little bit understood, better understood when it comes to adult relationships, but there's still a lot of media and relationships that talk about getting your partner to do what you want them to do using either positive reinforcement and um, love withdrawal and love withdrawal as a way of shaping the behavior of children is still immensely prevalent even down to time outs being seen as a constructive form which admittedly has come a long way from spanking would you like to comment on sort of behavior management with things like positive reinforcement negative reinforcement and sort of love withdrawal and things like that you're right that that's something which has changed culturally over well, over several generations and indeed has in the long term, if we look back over many different societies, there have been a lot of different uh, cultural norms, if you like. Um, but we're at a really interesting point where I think we're, we're maybe about to move into a new stage because you're right, there is a, a, lot, of, uh, a lot more awareness now that these types of methods, the withholding love or 
controlling by reinforcing certain behaviours and things. Although it may seem effective, it's not actually necessarily to the long-term benefit of the relationship or of the child who is uh, on the receiving end of these behaviours. Um, so far, talking about it from purely a parent's point of view, um, I've only just uh, reached the stage that most people would be calling the terrible twos. So I can't uh, pretend to be a master, but we're approaching it on a day-by-day -day basis in the same manner that we have all of our parenting so far, which is to first and foremost consider our child a person and not to say, uh, no, don't do that, go, go to the naughty step or uh, or whatever, but rather to, to, to enter into a dialogue. So our son just now is quite bad for throwing things around the house, but rather than just shouting no or uh, treating him as though he's been naughty or, you know, trying to give him ice cream when he's not doing things or something. I just, if I see him about to throw something, I say, oh, thank you, give that to mummy, please. And he'll hand it over to me very nicely because that's the most respectful way that I can think of to, yeah. to, to, to encourage him to behave the way that I want him to behave, but without pressurising him by controlling him one way or the other, either by controlling him with positive reinforcement or by controlling him by being negative. It's quite a, a neutral way, if you like. It, I offer him the opportunity to give it to me instead of throwing it, and 99 times out of 100, he does. I think the terrible twos, as a turn of phrase, as a cultural turn of phrase, which is trodden now, is actually, based on what I've learned from interviewing experts such as yourself, is that really there's no need for terrible twos. I mean, not everyone has them. I've certainly spoken to a bunch of parents who are further along the parenting journey than you are, who never had terrible twos and never had any teenage rebellion at all because they interacted in the sort of ways that, that you've described. Yeah. One thing that, I, that I've learned um, from the guests I've had on my show is that you don't necessarily need to see behaviour that seems adverse, like throwing things around as adverse rather than as an expression of some kind of need and desire which hasn't been fully manifested. So, you yeah. know, if, if the kids want to write in, on the walls, then, you know, they, they, they want to write. So rather than scald them, you give them some paper or or a big A3 sheet if they wanted to use me uh, messy paints and take it outside and let them be as, as messy as they want. And another approach that comes to mind for me with the throwing, I certainly don't mean to coach you, is the, op the option of taking the child outside to throw a ball. It's well, just saying, oh, you know, you, you have a desire to throw, so let, let's okay. play catch. That's, um, that's exactly it. But it, again, it's about reading the situation because sometimes when he wants to throw things, he wants to, to go out and we'll do that. We'll go and play with the ball and throw something or throw something that we can safely throw indoors, like, you know, a soft bean bag or something like that. But some of the times when he does it, what he's really saying is, uh, I can't get this thing which I've stuck in the hole back out, so I'll just throw something else because I feel angry. And then what I'll oh, say to him would be, um, why don't you have a cuddle? Or do, do you want mummy to get it out from under here? Or um, it's a, a, about reading what the need is because 
as you as you've mentioned several times, children have a very limited palette when it comes to the the emotions and the ideas and things that they can express with words. So all of their other behaviours are expressing something, and it's a, about being sort of quick and teasing that apart in the moment and responding in a way that is sensitive to the underlying feeling. Yeah, that's 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 so true and so wise. One of the approaches that I learned from a book called How to Talk So Kids Will Listen and Listen So Kids Will Talk is the simple approach of putting names on children's emotions. And I used that extensively when I was a volunteer in primary school. I'd ask children, um, are you feeling a bit frustrated or uh, are you bored or you know, I'd, I'd connect with their emotions because by naming the emotion of the child, they feel empathy, but it also helps them identify their own emotions and become better at expressing them because they have a model for doing that. Yeah, it's like, that's a good book, actually, that one. Um, and, and yes, I think that's a very useful tool to employ. Uh, shall we talk about some practical approaches? You sent me a list of some things that you've got some experience with and knowledge that might be helpful to others. So let's look. Breast bottle and weaning. What are some of your super insights on that subject? Uh, certainly there can be no doubt that breastfeeding is the best possible start that you can give your child, but it is fraught with difficulties. And the manner in which that we address that in terms of how parents support one another is uh, it doesn't really recognize the complexity at all. If you go onto a breastfeeding support page, you'll find that there is a, a form of sort of breastfeeding fascism where anybody that's not in the club is a bad parent. And I think that equating breastfeeding and good parenting is it kind of comes back to what you were talking about with the, the job parenting. It's your job to breastfeed your child. The minute that you make it like that, it puts a huge amount of pressure and it makes people feel like a failure. And that doesn't actually benefit anybody. That's not really what support is about. It's not a way of saying, I'm a better parent than you because I, I breastfeed. If parents have to bottle feed, then they have to bottle feed and they have their own reasons for that. And the, the best possible way to encourage those whose only reason is simply that they don't know where to start with breastfeeding is by making good information and genuine support available. So in terms of nutri nutritionally, there is no equivalent to breastfeeding. However, if for whatever reason, bottle feeding is your only option, then there are lots of ways that you can make up for some of the deficits. Not in, not in nutritional terms, but in terms of things like bonding and stuff. So I can't recommend highly enough bathing with your child, even if you breastfeed, but especially if you bottle feed, that opportunity to have skin-to-skin -skin time in a sort of relaxed atmosphere. And it's something that you can do as a family if your bath is big enough. Um, and also, it's very important that daddy takes part in that too, if he's about. Um, so yeah, if you're bottle feeding, there are lots of ways that you can uh, make sure that you still get that really good bond. 
Can you talk about some of the benefits of bathing with your child in that skin-to-skin contact, as you put it? Skin-to-skin contact is so crucial that if children don't receive skin-to-skin contact in the first three months, they will be affected by that for the rest of their lives. Um, It's something that uh, I I have several friends who work in social work, um, specifically with young children, and we talked a lot um, you know about the sort of intellectual side of this stuff um, it, it's something that's so important that if kids are separated from their parents at a very young age and they're not maybe fostered or adopted really quickly it can it can never ever be made back up for ever again okay so this is skin to skin contact is absolutely crucial to emotional development and to be not only forming the bond between an infant and that person but to the infant's ability to form bonds full stop, to the infant's ability to connect emotionally and to feel properly secure and safe in in their, their whole life is really uh, the underpinning thing to that is skin-to-skin contact. Because when it comes right down to it, we're animals, we're, we have the same needs that, kittens and cats have or horses and foals or 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 any animals that stay with their mothers <laughs> um so babies needs to be close and things like uh, children with irregular heartbeats or premature children um their heartbeat will regulate if they're in physical contact with a parent because the parent's heartbeat will regulate their heartbeat so they, they do that a lot with um, in intensive care with little babies. It's called kangaroo care. And just that proximity is so beneficial to the little one. So re- regardless, even if your child is like, you know, the happiest, healthiest, biggest bouncing baby boy in the world, the benefit of skin to skin time is still huge. And baby massage and uh, bathing with your child are two of the very easy nice ways that you can fit that into your daily routine because it can be difficult sometimes for people to think well how because it's not a normal thing you may be used to having skin skin contact with your partner but it's not a sort of normal thing to do within with a new person and so how you fit that into your life with your child um it's something you've got to kind of work at you've got to think where are the times in my day where i could uh, make space for this and it's also something that you know you shouldn't stop doing after three months or six months or whatever um i mean our, our kids nearly two and we regularly take him in the shower with us or in the bath because there's no sort of you know issue of like you know weirdness about bodies or any, any of that kind of thing it's about reaffirming the bond Yes, and a lot of parents don't know that children learn to self-regulate through the through co-regulation with their their caregivers. I did an interview with Robin Peters Bennett of StopSpanking.org, which is available on this channel. When she speaks extensively on the importance of that and ways to apply it for anyone who's interested in learning more about that. So it tells a little bit about. Uh you know, how feeding forms relationships. Uh, this is, you know, breastfeeding and bottle feeding, although you have to work a bit harder at that. That early feeding, yes, it's about nutrition, but it's very much about uh, forming relationships with caregivers. The next step 
weaning is difficult, very difficult for parents, and an awful lot of parents either hold back on starting it or over-regulate the weaning process because it's about letting go. You've spent all this time breastfeeding or bottle feeding your infant all the hours of the day and night, holding them close to you, forming this bond, and suddenly you have to allow them independence. But weaning is about opening your child's world and allowing them to explore, to explore new tastes, new textures, sensations like tingliness and coldness and spiciness and and also things like throwing food and mangling food with your finger and t testing out what food is like in your ear, all of that. Um, and that's a, it's a very scary process for parents. So when I say that parents over-regulate it, what I mean by that is that there's a, a, a reticence, there's a tendency to try and give your baby puries because it feels like they won't choke on them or to give them really bland flavours because you they're used to milk, that milk that maybe you produce as your own body, and then suddenly handing them over to carrot sticks feels very alien, but it is so important. And it concerns me greatly, actually, how often people will say that their nine or ten month old um, still isn't really eating any solids, and they're, you know, they're still really just basically subsisting off of milk, because Yes, there is the, the, the sort of the tagline is food is until one, food is for fun. And yes, that's true, but that that doesn't mean you don't really need to bother with it. It's, it's just a diversion until one. What it means is explore, have fun, enjoy, don't worry about the mess. Don't worry if they don't eat everything that's on their plate. In fact, never force them to eat anything, everything that's on their plate. That's not healthy. It means embrace the culinary delights. Introduce your child to everything and anything. If they want to try a lemon, don't say, well, you won't like that. Let them try it. And you might be surprised, actually, my child eats things that my mum won't even eat. Like, I, I make these little, um, it's squid and prawn with coriander made into a sort of meatball kind of thing, coated in Chinese five spice batter. He loves them absolutely loves them and has done since he was really quite small. You have to allow your child opportunities and I'm the biggest fan of baby led weaning. Yes, it is a little bit scary because sometimes children eat things and their gag reflex is much further forward than an adult's. So they gag a lot more easily and it's tempting to think that they're choking and then to be put off. I think, oh no, I can't do that again. And in fact, actually, I've had that with both gran grandmas saying like, oh no, I, I, that's too choky, you can't have that. Um, and I said, I'm his parent, yes he can. <laughs> because children actually are remarkably good at staying alive. They're not trying to choke themselves. As long as you follow the guidelines, which are, you know, there are good guidelines available through the NHS about what size of pieces to give children. You know, they're actually maybe better with like a whole slice of bread, say, than a tiny little bit, because then they just take off the amount that they can manage. Um, so as long as you follow those guidelines, food is a, a wonderful way to allow your child to explore the world. And you can embrace that and be part of their relationship with food and help them to form a healthy relationship with food as long as you're prepared to make the transition with them at their speed.
holding a child back from starting solid food actually is going to make it more difficult later because they're going to be that bit older and that bit more reluctant to sort of try something new. Whereas if you just get going with it quickly, even though it's scary, but just, you know, let them get on with it, they're, they're desperate to learn. They're desperate for new experiences. They're hungry for experiences as well as for food. Yes, certainly you have that trust in the child's natural organismic tendency for self-preservation and to, to learn firsthand from experience what it can and cannot handle. As you say, the ga gag reflex is further forward in the child and no doubt once it gags once on a piece of food, it isn't going to want to so readily do the same again. I mean, we had to learn this from somewhere and it wasn't learned from someone telling us how much or how little food to ingest. It's part of a first-hand dialogue between ourselves as organisms and our environment. That's something actually which I think parents are so um, troubled about recognising is that actually their child is always in a first-hand dialogue with their environment, whether the parent wants them to be or not. And you can't control for every factor. And your best approach is to facilitate that engagement rather than trying to control it and hold it back. So true. Um, I'm going to have to go because that's Duncan just home. It's time for us to dash off and go and pick up Jamie from his childminders. Thanks again for having me. Take care. Goodbye. Bye. Okay. Okay, great. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for tuning in to the Be Yourself and Love It podcast. Until next week, be yourself. Well, don't just be yourself. Be yourself and love it.